Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <clears throat> so here we are, uh, last evening of the retreat. Maybe some of you are feeling, oh, gee, now I'm starting to get the hang of it. could settle in now. <clears throat> and there it is, gone. <clears throat> That's often how, how we plan it, so you want to come back um, a little bit more. But it does take a few days to settle in. And then uh, as was so um, lovely to, to see people in, uh, in the groups, uh, by and large, um, appreciating that they, they've come, even if it's been new, even if it's been challenging at times. Uh, there's some kind of opening that starts to happen over time. It's, it's one of the, the miracles of mindfulness. It, it works. Um, and whatever your retreat was, uh, if you take it that it was just the one that you needed, there's nothing wasted. I would suspect that even if it didn't go according to plan, uh, that you've learned some valuable things in your time here. And that's, that's the key. If you're learning and growing, uh, then um, nothing is wasted. And what we've been doing, just to give you a, a reminder of the, the bigger picture in this awakening joy retreat, is practice with the emphasis on um, cultivating wholesome states. That um, other half of the, of the wise effort, dealing and uh, overcoming and guarding against unwholesome states, and certainly we've talked about that with opening up to our difficulties and and forgiveness and self-compassion um, and as well putting a, a bit more emphasis on cultivating all those states that expand and, and open us, open our hearts and open our minds. And uh, I hope you take, take um, in the idea of when you are feeling moments of well-being, not just here on retreat, but at home, that you've been practicing so that you can be more present for them at home as well. And as the Buddha says, to feel the gladness that accompanies the wholesome state. We haven't mentioned this yet, but a little formula that um, uh, our friend Rick Hansen suggests probably many of you are familiar with Rick Hansen um, who uh, teaches here and was on the board for a number of years and uh, uh, a neuroscience uh, expert and who's written a number of books um, hardwiring happiness and Buddha's brain and other books like that uh, he says to um, take in the good is the way to shift your uh, your default to uh, to greater well-being and taking in the good is just what 
we've been talking about here, opening to the gladness connected with the wholesome. And he suggests, he says, if you, in a moment of well-being, if you are present for it and let your mindfulness connect and savor it, not just as a thought, oh, I'm feeling good, but, oh, this is what it feels like to feel good and connect with it in your body as well. If you do that, he suggests doing it six times a day for 30 seconds. I know that's three minutes of well-being. It's, <laughs> it's a lot. It's a stretch. But he says, if you do that over a two-week period, just as an experiment, as a practice, you will notice a real shift in your level of well-being because both you are starting to deepen some grooves towards happiness and then some neural pathways are getting set up and you're also getting into the habit of looking for and noticing and connecting with the good, what he calls taking in the good. So uh, you might consider that as a a little uh, uh, going away uh, extra credit assignment. And as a little bit of a recap, we've covered a number of different wholesome states from the teachings of the Buddha that uh, are probably not new to you, but can be cultivated consciously in this inclining the mind towards greater well-being and joy. Intention, the intention to put well-being in the center of your life, the intention to go for goodness, to more and more trust in goodness. And that sets you in a particular direction Mindfulness, which is the key to cultivating wholesome states, weakening unwholesome states, and when the wholesome states are here, to increase them, as just was talking about. Gratitude as a way to directly open up the heart and also create a, a context a bigger way to hold all the challenges in our life. And my life is very blessed, as my mom said. Opening up to the, the dukkha, opening up to suffering, which has this paradoxical effect that when you are willing and courageous enough to be here for the hard stuff, in a way that works for you, just a little at a time. You don't want to go in over your head, but just being brave and stretching yourself a little at a time. And you're not flinching from life, that aspect of life. Then you're more in touch with all of those qualities that can hold the challenges with courage, with... um, Uh, compassion, with clarity, uh, with a a sense of confidence, all of those things 
from being willing in a skillful way to open up to the challenges. We spent some time with Metta and heard about loving awareness, just left, uh, uh, resting in loving awareness and seeing who you really are and turning that Metta towards yourself, not to just think of it as something that you give out there, but really turning it towards yourself is the way that you uh, connect with the source of it all. Of course, sharing with others, metta for others, and we touched a little bit about the the difference between metta and attachment, mm, the joy of awakening, and feeling how wonderful it is for us to just rest in the moment without needing to do anything to make it happen, but to open up to your true nature as it is. Self-compassion, um, which is when the, when the going gets rough, to hold it with that kind heart. Play and dancing. I hope you, um, you saw how wonderful it is to remember to be a child again. Just as, uh, as Jesus says, except ye be converted, you will not know the kingdom of heaven. To be, to remember that playful spirit and that playfulness. And uh, thank you so much, Evelyn, for your special contribution in this, uh, in this retreat. Um, in fact, that reminds me, I, I want to do... Pull up some quotes about play. Let's see. Just bear with me. There's a few a few different um, studies that have been done on the importance and the power of play. Just lest you think it's a it's a st- silly thing to do, or, well, I don't have time. I've got to be serious in my life. I don't have time to play around. Uh, here it is. <clears throat> um, according to one study, individuals who spend some time just having fun are 20% more likely to feel happy on a daily basis and 36% more likely to feel comfortable with their age and stage of life. In another study of hundreds of adults, those who enjoy silly humor are one-third more likely to feel happy. In uh, 100 Simple Secrets of Happy People, um, uh, the author makes the point that regularly having fun, he is found to be one of five central factors in leading a satisfied life. And as uh, our colleague Wes Nisker says, if you can't laugh, it's just not funny. (laughs) (laughs) And you can get very serious in your spiritual practice. I don't think I shared this in the uh, the beginning of the retreat. I shared it in one of the groups. The reason I got into all of this awakening joy stuff was 
after I had a long honeymoon with the Dharma, and it was pretty long, I had found what I was looking for, and it was my salvation, I uh, entered a period where I got very serious about my practice. Dead serious. Emphasis on the dead. And uh, I lost my joy for a while, and that was what I, uh, what motivated me to see, well, what did the Buddha actually say about well-being and happiness? So to um, let yourself be playful, let life move through you. And one of the, when we do the joy course, by the way, uh, which, uh, which comes, goes from uh, end of January or beginning of February, if you do it online, to middle of June. It's a five-month course cultivating these different wholesome states. Besides going through the ten, ten different wholesome states that I write about in the book, uh, I suggest supportive practices like some way for creative energy to move through you, whether it's dancing or singing or writing or drawing or some way to let life play through you. Because in that, in that practice, you are out of your head and you're just allowing your aliveness to come through. Mm-hmm. Along with meditating, taking some quiet time, being in your body and, uh, and letting yourself uh, feel alive and healthy that way and uh, various other supportive practices. But play is, uh, is a very... Uh, important one. So I wanted to talk tonight about uh, three more wholesome states uh, that you might keep in mind. And and this is um, when I when I'm giving this list. I don't want you to take it as oh my goodness. Now I've got to remember three more things to do. Uh, actually, any one. Will it's like a hologram. Any entree into well-being, which is supporting your intention for well-being, will naturally um, affect and cultivate all the other ones. Um, so this is more like a smorgasbord rather than a, a, a final exam. But the, um, the ones that I, I want to talk about tonight are... Um, integrity, contentment, and uh, making a difference in the world. And with all of these, I just want to say, as I, as I mentioned before, these probably aren't new to you. you know, gratitude is not new to you. Loving or being kind to yourself is not new to you. But one of the powers of Dharma practice is that word practice. It's one thing to have the idea. It's a whole other to actually practice. That's how the neural pathways start to change in that uh, um, teaching that, uh, that the Buddha says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination of mind. Or as that, uh, Donald Hebb uh, neuroscience axiom says neurons that fire together wire together. 
but you have to get them firing together, embodying them before they wire. Otherwise, it's just good ideas that go in and go out. So, first, the uh, power of integrity. The Buddha uh, talks about this as um, the bliss of blamelessness. And in the teachings is uh, how he did at the very beginning of the retreat. We took those five precepts, remember those? That those are suggested guidelines for well-being. And he says that is the foundation for a peaceful heart, for a peaceful heart and a, a free mind. That if you are aligned with your values, there is a, a sense of wholeness and completion. Uh, and when you're out of alignment with your values, there's a real price to pay. And he talks about this in one discourse as the bliss of blamelessness. And he gives an example. In this one discourse, he's talking about um, four different kinds of happiness that anyone, whether or not you're uh, practicing the Dharma, any, any householder can experience. One is the happiness that comes from being free of debt. Very practical, right? Ah, oh, what a relief. Then there's the happiness that can come from being so um, fortunate that you can take care of yourself and those that are close to you and you, uh, that you care about. Then there's the happiness that comes from being so prosperous and fortunate that you can be generous with people even outside of your circle. And then the fourth is this bliss of blamelessness where you are living with integrity and you don't need to hide or feel um, embarrassed or feel that you'll be found and doing something that, as the phrase goes, doing things that the wise would later reprove. And he says, compared to the bliss of blamelessness, those first three sources of happiness are not one-sixteenth as potent a source of well-being. I don't know how he figured that out. But that's the equation, <laughs> right in the Anguttara Nikaya. Okay. And when you think about it, if you are acting out of alignment, it doesn't matter how prosperous you are. You're, you can't enjoy it because there's a place inside that knows, that knows when you're off. And we are wired up with that understanding and knowing when we're off. If we listen carefully enough, there are these two wholesome mental factors called hiri and otapam that are usually translated as moral shame and moral dread. Moral shame is being uh, afraid that somebody will find out what you're doing when it's really off. And moral dread um, no, moral shame is your own inner compass and moral dread is others that who you, whose respect you, you want 
will find out that your reputation is shot. It's very Victorian um, um, definitions, but we have another word for it. What do we call that place inside that knows? The good place that knows. <laughs> conscience, yeah. We're wired up with this conscience. Can you imagine if we weren't? It's dicey enough as it is. But there's a place in us that really knows. And if we can listen inside, we can hear. How many times have we done something? We're at that crossroads in our in our uh, in a situation, and we say, "Should I or shouldn't I?" You know, click the send button on the email, or give somebody their just desserts, whatever, or take our third helping of dessert, or whatever it is, you know. Should I or shouldn't I? Oh, what the heck, you know, or oh, it'll feel so good. And then afterwards, what was I thinking, you know? It's amazing how we're wired up that way where we, it feels so good on the front end, or we think it will, and we can't realize all the mind moments of cleaning up or remorse on the back end. So this takes some mindfulness to just see, how am I going to feel about this? That's, that's my, what I call my North Star. When I'm at a choice point, I, these days, uh, think, okay, how am I going to feel about this next week or six months from now, whatever. It saves a whole lot of needless dukkha. Oh, and really, sometimes I think of the the spiritual uh, journey as learning the power of delayed gratification. Because what feels good on the front end feels a bit lousy on the back end, and there's a price to pay. So, something to, to keep in mind, that feeling of alignment with integrity. Now, of course... We're not saints and we blow it. So this is just part of being human too. You don't want to have such high standards for yourself that when you are uh, in your humanness and act a little bit unconscious or not thinking or greedy or um, uh, with ill will that you cause suffering, you don't want to beat yourself up. And this is where self-compassion comes in and forgiveness comes in and as the Buddha says if you can learn from your mistakes if you have what he called wise remorse or wise reflection then there's nothing wasted you make amends if you can and then you um, get clear on um, on what you've learned and make a commitment to not go that route again. So when we do our uh, the precepts, those are not so much commandments as guidelines for mindfulness, guidelines for happiness, and what I call uh, habits for happiness, whether it's not 
killing or not stealing or sexuality or uh, or speech or um, uh, substances. There's one way we can think, oh, I don't want to cause suffering through that. But they can be habits of happiness when you think of them as, oh, I want to honor life and respect life. Oh, I want to um, share my resources or others need not um, feel threatened by me that I'm going to be taking something that's not mine or around sexuality that I can have respectful and healthy boundaries and uh, others, again, uh, can feel safe around me in my speech that I can speak kindly and honestly um, that's a great source of happiness and around uh, substances that I really value having a clean, uh, a clear mind and a, a healthy body. Oh, it feels so good. So rather than not being a naughty boy or a naughty girl, to go for, oh, this feels really good. The basis of inner peace, the foundation for inner peace. And anytime you're at a crossroads and you've got this choice point and you happen to choose the high road, don't miss it. Rather than thinking, well, I'm doing the way, I'm doing what I'm supposed to and if I didn't, I'd be really a lousy person. Just one little extra piece in there. Oh, I'm choosing wisely. And let yourself feel how good it feels. So you experience just what he's talking about, the bliss of blamelessness. Oh, how wonderful. We can just miss out on all of those moments where we're just trying to avoid being rotten and miss out that oh we're choosing goodness we're going for goodness because when you can tune into it you're deepening how good it feels when you make that choice so this is a a foundation for uh, for true well-being another wholesome state that i want to talk about uh, which in this talk I'm, I'm calling uh, contentment. A very high state of being. Let me see if I can pull up some quotes on contentment. Mm. To be uh, humble and content and grateful. This is a blessing supreme. Contentment is the greatest wealth. These are quotes of the Buddha. Contentment is the greatest wealth. And it's a combination of both um, what is sometimes called renunciation, nikama, letting go, and also uh, a sense of equanimity, that things are as they are, and it's okay. Santuti is the, the Pali word for contentment. Now this contentment 
Uh, I just want to qualify it in, in, in one way. Contentment doesn't mean laziness. It doesn't mean, you know, well, I think I'll be a couch potato this lifetime. That's cool. I'm content. It means being engaged and um, feeling alive, but being okay with how things are and feeling that there's a, an enoughness right now in this moment. And particularly when it comes to our spiritual practice, the Buddha actually, as much as he extolled contentment, he also said to not be lazy. This is a quote of his. Two things I came to know well, not to be content with good states so far achieved and to be unremitting with concern about one's liberation. So while it's good to be content with how things are, to realize if there's more purification and more growth and more awakening that you don't want to be satisfied because the game is about waking up as much as you can. That doesn't mean you grasp. It just means, ah, this is where my commitment is, my vision is to fully awaken. <clears throat> but contentment, with particularly with regard to um, our life in this world, is to realize that we generally have enough, particularly in this culture. There's no end to our desires being fulfilled. And the way it's wired, we're wired up, when a desire is fulfilled, it's not that we generally say, ah, okay, got that one fulfilled, I don't need anything else. What it, it's just this mysterious uh, <laughs> play in the game that it feels so good to get your desire fulfilled that we get tricked into thinking, I think Howie mentioned this, that, oh, happiness is about creating a desire and getting it fulfilled. And if I could put them close enough together so that there's no gaps, I've won. There's no end to that. So contentment is really, uh, particularly around letting go, is discerning what you need from what you want. There's no end to your wants. But needs, we can get along often with very little. We don't need 120 channels on TV to be happy, you know. I remember when it was just three, you know. Even that, it seemed like, let's see, ABC or NBC. Now, forget it. It's all over the place, you know. And we have this disease, our, our current uh, um, cultural disease called FAMS, fear of missing something. What about that? What about that? What about that? Mm. And uh, now I'm remembering, I want to read to you a, uh, a piece from my favorite writer, if you uh, haven't heard of him. His name is Mark Morford. And uh, he writes every Wednesday. It's, my week is built around 
his column. And if you just Google Mark Morford, he's brilliant. And this is from his column, um, Hurry Up, Get More Done, and Die. <laughs> That's the name of it. Your terrifying word of the day is microtasking. And it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exists to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management because, well, if that's not the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? <laughs> I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? What sort of things? Mm -hmm. Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things that you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise. But hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? <laughs> Feel? Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? It's a fascinating and, yes, terrifying idea that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do, wow, think of all you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you could get checked off your list. We are, by and large, utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing so as to feel the totality of everything. Meditation, for most, is disquieting and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous, a void aching to be filled. The Internet has us convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information, and if you can't swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. In any 48-hour period in 2010, said, says a stunning article I read in The Atlantic, more data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the previous 30,000 years up to the year 2005. I read this study. That's in a 48-hour period. By the year 2020 that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. It is no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, and waving to the closed-caption TV cameras. It's no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree, you can't just sit in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn as OnStar politely blows up your car. <laughs> How easily we forget. Time expands. Time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. 
You can do 10 things in an hour or one thing in 10. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day. And time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. Mm. That's what we're up against. And thinking not only do we need to fill everything up, but we need to get everything. And we need to... um, have somehow stuffing our lives with more, we think that it'll be better. But really, you know how good it feels when you clean out your closet? You know, that decluttering feeling? You know, simplifying, this is what we're talking about. You ever see the the magazine Real Simple? It's about 250 pages of advertisements of things that you need to get to make your life more simple. Mm. But it's very popular because people say, oh, real simple, I'll take that. We crave simplicity. Simplicity. How good it feels to let go and see, I don't need. The spaciousness feels so much better than when you give up what you haven't used in five years. Very rarely do you give your stuff to goodwill and say afterwards, oh, gee, maybe I will wear that sweater that I haven't worn eight (laughs) years in eight years. This is uh, from P.A. Paiuto, a great Buddhist uh, scholar and economist and uh, monk and author, talking about the principle in Buddhism of moderation, matanuta, the, the, um, the point, the amount that's just right, that's just enough. Okay. It is an awareness of that optimum point where enhancement of true well-being coincides with the experience of satisfaction. Consump- consumption balanced to an amount appropriate with well-being rather than to the satisfaction of infinite desires. In contrast to maximum consumption leading to more satisfaction, we have moderate or wise consumption leading to well-being. So this is not necessarily to deprive yourself, but it's to just notice, oh, this is enough. That takes mindfulness because the conditioning is, well, this was good. A little bit more will be even better. And that's where we are caught in dukkha, the second noble truth, the wanting mind, and to see the point where it's enough, where you can actually let go, is moving from the second noble truth of suffering of the cause of suffering being wanting, to the third noble truth, letting go and seeing, I don't need. So to see the difference between what you 
want from what you need. Very profound practice. Somebody uh, asked uh, John D. Rockefeller when he was the richest man in the world, how much money will be enough? And his answer was, just a little more. Yeah. <laughs> so to really, to really see this and to bring about balance in your life and balance in your material uh, possessions, um, this is this whole idea of contentment, of not needing more than you have. You know that... Uh, Sinead O'Connor song, uh, I do not want what I have not got. You know, it's brilliant. To want what you have and to not want what you don't have, that's, that's the secret. And some of the happiest people I know only have a begging bowl, a robe, shelter, and medicine. This is particularly for those of us who are so fortunate to not miss what we have and realize this is enough. And out of that sense of enoughness, you you have uh, what my son Adam, who's uh, now 27 uh, and who teaches uh, the teens here and uh, a very strong uh, practitioner, what he called uh, on one retreat, he realized that he had all he need needed, and he called it abundant enoughness. We all, or I'd say most of us, much of the time, have abundant enoughness if we can see, rather than looking at what's missing to see what we have. This is another aspect of the, the gratitude practice. Mm. And out of that abundant enoughness then comes the natural extension of that, which is uh, the generous heart. We have so much to give. And this is one of the greatest sources of happiness. As uh, Deborah and, and Howie so, uh, so beautifully were talking about Uh, before, our generosity, it feels good to share. It was the first paramita, the first perfection of the ten perfections. The Buddha would teach generosity before he taught about meditation or even uh, morality and, uh, and wisdom and patience. Generosity is the first thing he taught because it's something that uh, anybody knows how good it feels. If you have enough to share, and often it's the people who have less that, that share more, uh, ironically, then uh, you know you want to um, have a shared experience. You ever have a really great, say, ice cream cone or something that really tastes good for me? Ice cream often does it. And it's so good, and you're with a friend, and you say, oh, you've got to try this, right? Maybe not too big a bite, but, <laughs> but you've got to try it. Where's that impulse coming from? We, we want to share 
what we have with others because that shared experience is, is just so joyful. And there's nothing in it for us other than the joy of, of having that shared experience. And uh, it, the Buddha said, this is a great source of, of happiness. <clears throat> it is the, both the expression of letting go and also the um, acknowledgement of the interconnectedness as we have that exchange. Now, some people are very good at sharing and giving and not as good at receiving. So I just want to put a, a word or two in for the givers, the natural givers in the, in the group. Uh, first, you have to be really including yourself in your generosity. You don't want to give to the point of depletion. You want to give from a place of abundance. But if you have an easier time giving than receiving, uh, it's important to see that receiving gracefully can also be a great source of happiness, even if it doesn't come naturally to you. We talked about this in one of the groups uh, you know how it feels if you've if you've given somebody a gift and they say, "Oh, you shouldn't have done that." Oh, oh why'd you do that? Oh, you shouldn't have done that. You know, how does that feel? You know, maybe you feel, "Oh, I sh- maybe I shouldn't have done it." You know, <laughs> yeah. but there's a, a feeling of incompleteness. It's like, "Oh, gee, I wanted to make this person happy," and they can't receive it. And there's something incomplete about it. Whereas if you give somebody a gift and they respond, oh, thank you so much. Oh, that was so thoughtful of you. It's like in their receiving, it's a gift to you that you feel good about it. And so if you are in that habit of, oh no, I can't, I can't accept that, you're really doing a disservice to the person who's giving. It's what's called in the teachings being a field of merit for somebody's generosity. And the way a karmic exchange is talked about, the impact of the karma depends on the purity of the person giving, the purity of the gift, and the purity of heart in the person receiving. And if that person receiving on on the receiving end is contracted, it actually lessens the good karma of the person giving. So you want to be really um, gracious and grateful and appreciative and give that gift of receiving in that way to the one who gives. And then the deeper expression of this generosity is um, giving of your heart and giving of your caring. One of the highest forms of uh, sources of joy, which is expressing your caring heart, expressing your compassion. We are wired up for compassion. This is the, the way that Um, that we are wired in our brain. We are not by nature 
um, a selfish species. In fact, we are dependent on each other. And when we see somebody else do something that's inspiring, it touches us and it moves us. And when we do something generously and expressing our caring in volunteering or in service in some way, it actually lights up the uh, same centers in the brain as uh, food and sex. That it is a source of direct happiness and joy. And so I want to just say a word about the source of joy that comes from making a difference in this world. Martin Seligman, we've mentioned a few times, the father of positive psychology, as uh, Jane mentioned about the gratitude letter being one of the the prime uh, exercise that brings happiness that he found. But the essence of what he called, uh, calls authentic happiness comes from identifying what your own particular gifts are and strengths and finding ways to express them in the world, to make a contribution. That's where real happiness comes from. Now you want to be very um, wise about this and skillful because we can also feel that it's up to us to save the world. And that becomes uh, exhausting very quickly. But if we can express our natural compassion, uh, this is, uh, and express it in a wise way, uh, we will experience uh, true well-being. Compassion, the definition of compassion is the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. And it is one of the divine abodes along with loving kindness and joy and uh, equanimity. It is also called the sublime state. Compassion is a sublime state. And it's interesting how this sublime state requires suffering. It's not that suffering is sublime. Suffering is not sublime. But what it touches in us is this caring in our hearts. And that caring is sublime. And we want to express our caring. And it's important to see that practice is more than just finding peace within ourselves, but the other uh, dimension of practice is then what we, how we share it with the world, either in tangible or in, uh, in subtle ways. I want to read to you uh, uh, part of a treatise by um, Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, and if you uh, are not familiar with him, he is the premier translator of uh, Theravadan Buddhism. All the thick books, like the middle-length discourses or the uh, the uh, connected discourses and these thick tomes, tomes. 
he's spent the last 25, 30 years translating. So he knows the Pali Canon very well, better than anybody uh, that, that I, I can think of. And he wrote this essay a few years ago called um, A Challenge to Buddhists. He says, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a resigned quietism. In each historical period, the Dharma finds new means to unfold its potentials in ways precisely linked to that era's distinctive historical conditions. I believe that our own era provides the appropriate historical stage for the transcendent truth of the Dharma to bend back upon the world and engage human suffering at multiple levels. even the lowest, harshest, and most degrading levels, not in mere contemplation, but in effective relief-granting action illuminated by its own world-transcending goal. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. I believe it also points in a direction that Buddhism should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. A challenge to Buddhists. The world needs our caring. And if you think of practice just as finding some relief from your stress and finding some inner peace, you're missing out on the tremendous opportunity for um, the joy of making a difference in the world. And particularly in in these days and coming years, we're going to face, as perhaps you are, aware, well aware, we're going to face a lot of suffering. Um, This is what we're looking at, a lot of suffering. How to still be in touch with our joy in the face of tremendous insanity and suffering and what we're doing to the planet. This is our challenge and for me, and I've gotten um, active in the last few years, uh, particularly around climate change, uh, it took me like a year and a half or two to take in the fact, oh, this might not be a very rosy picture. This is going to be hard. But once we open up to the suffering like we've been talking about here and seeing, okay, what can I do that can come from love that 
rather than coming from fear or coming from anger and outrage, to get in touch with my caring to make a difference in the world. Because the more you can get in touch with your caring, the more contagious that is. And the more you're coming from love, the more it awakens that in others. So I've tried to get my inspiration from wherever I can, and I got it, get it from a few different places. One is uh, from Angelus Arian, who passed away a couple of months ago, uh, a very wise being who said, action absorbs anxiety. What can we find as... Uh, Andrew Harvey, another inspiration of mine, he says, follow your heartbreak. Just follow what really touches you and rather than saving the world, just try to make a difference and notice how good it feels and come from love rather than anger and, uh, and ill will. Somebody else who I've been very inspired by, Julia Butterfly Hill, who lived up in a tree for two years uh, up in uh, Northern California and uh, has been a tremendous activist to, um, um, to wake people up to um, wise ecology. And she's very inspiring. And she gives these talks and she's just electric. I, I highly recommend you checking out Julia Butterfly Hill. And she gives talks and at the end of the talks, she says, invariably, people come up to her and say, oh, Julia, you, you've inspired me so. And she says, oh, that's wonderful. Inspired you to do what? <laughs> we can all make a difference. And in this particular era, we get our inspiration. I, I read this uh, this um, study that said what's, nif- what's needed for a shift in the population in, convention- in, in the way our society thinks is just a 7% shift of the population. You don't have to convince everybody. Just convince those who are waiting to, uh, uh, to make a shift and then most of the rest of the population says, oh, that's what we're supposed to do now. And whether it's about uh, feminist rights or civil rights or gay rights, or things change very fast once the tipping point is reached. One person I, I just want to mention also who's been a huge inspiration for me lately, and I share this because uh, you can uh, join me in this. This is an album um, called Ames by a... Uh, this amazing artist, Vienna Tang, um, who's blown my mind. I just have played this for uh, like the last six months over and over. A must. For, I, and I, I wake up at three in the morning with songs going through my head. A must for anybody who wants to engage in the world. And uh, in fact, we had Earth Day here uh, at Spirit Rock and uh, Marianne, our bookstore person, said, uh, I said, I'm going to play this video so everybody's going to see this. And she said, okay, I'll order 100 CDs. You know, and we have still lots of CDs and they're, they're out there uh, on the table for discount, which I, I highly recommend. But you find inspiration where it's contagious when you see people do things that are inspiring. It makes you want to uh, make a difference as well.
there is, by the way, uh, I'll mention, uh, it's just come up, uh, I've been involved with the Teachers um, Collective on uh, Climate Change uh, that came out of uh, uh, a presentation here uh, last year. And uh, there's, uh, there's going to be a big uh, event in September in New York uh, for two days that 350, Bill McKibben's group 350 is sponsoring. It's going to be big. And there's um, people coming from all over the country uh, about climate change. And Kerry is going to be uh, part of this train that's going from uh, San Francisco to New York, the climate change train. And uh, you can, uh, we, we just had a flyer put out. We can, I have one copy here, we can uh, put out flyer. But there's ways to express your caring because action absorbs anxiety. So, um, a few things to keep in mind. Integrity, contentment, how fortunate we are, and out of that contentment, an abundant enoughness that makes you want to contribute to making this a better world. All of those are tremendous sources of happiness and joy. And I'll, I'll close with a, a short passage from uh, a wonderful Tibetan master, Nyosho Kempo. He says, We're not practicing for ourselves alone, since everyone is involved and included in the great scope of our perfectly pure motivation to benefit others. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. If we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, and transformed in us and become beneficial to others through contact with this good heart, which we, the Bodhisattvas, strive to embody. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you very much for your attention. And uh, let's come back in uh, 20 minutes for uh, one last sitting and we'll do a little metta to close. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.